0: Oh jeez.
1: Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aw, Jeez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio.
2: We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on a show that's named after a city in North Dakota.
1: Every week we go over what happened and who's dead now. We'll ask experts to weigh in on the show and talk about the murders, the mob, the music, and more. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for NPR, and I watch a fair amount of television.
2: I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and York Classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential. This week, we talked to Vancouver actor Emily Hain. She plays the charming and morose Noreen Vanderslice on Fargo. But first, we need to talk about what happened last night, and quite a bit happened. It was a long episode. Oh
1: my god, I couldn't believe it! So, I mean, we open with three people getting blasted through a window in this office. This was insane.
2: It's initially really confusing because we don't recognize these three characters who are killed. So we're left trying to figure out, wait, who are these people? Where are they? Wait, was that Bear as one of the window washers? And who's the other guy with Bear uh, on the window washing like Catwalk?
1: Exactly. We're in this random office. They're talking about corporations and stuff like that. And yep, it's the old (laughs) window washer masquerading (laughs) murderer. And if you look close, it is Bear and the Gerhardt's new friend who's in from Buffalo, Ricky.
2: Ricky, Ricky, very stylish dresser, definitely bringing the urban fashion of 1979 to Fargo, looking good and uh, seems to be effective at his job, at least insofar as he and Bear successfully take out three people who we later learn are high ups in the Kansas City mob, or at least people with uh, connections in the Kansas City mob.
1: So, three bodies in, then very appropriately, we go to a funeral that's on the Gerhardt compound. They are laying Otto to rest, RIP Otto. He was killed in last week's shootout. We have confirmation now that the Gerhardt patriarch is dead. They're also having a funeral for Rye, but they don't have Rye's body. All they have is the belt buckle, which Simone places the eagle in the hole that they've dug.
2: And we'll come back to that belt buckle later.
1: But also, this made me wonder, like, yes, we know Ed ground up Rye's body, but... Where did it go then?
2: <laughs> yeah, right. We're left wondering. I mean, that was a that would have been what a hundred ten pounds of ground beef. 110
1: <laughs> pounds of beef, anyway. Well, yeah, maybe I mean, I don't we really
2: know. don't want. I mean, we really don't want to know what happened to the rest of Rye. But yeah, certainly all the Gerhardts have of him is his American Eagle belt buckle.
1: And so they're laying Otto and Rye to rest.
2: Bear and the their new friend from Buffalo show up a little bit late to the funeral. Because
1: Bear doesn't like funerals, even well, though...
2: <laughs> well, no one likes funerals.
1: Yeah, it's his dad and his nephew. And they've got a little plan of their own, but Simone doesn't want to hear it. And Simone and Floyd have this really brutal talking to. So Simone says, this family deserves the ground.
2: Yeah, she's done. She's done with both her family and her would-be adopted family in Kansas City. So she gets in her car and peels off just in time for the cavalry to arrive. This would be Ben and Lou who show up having politely, seemingly at you know Ben's insistence being an old family friend and all, they've politely waited for the Gerhardt funeral to end before rolling onto the compound to bring Floyd in, it turns out, for questioning.
1: Yeah, They take Floyd away and they leave Bear. So Bear is basically... In charge now, and he's going to start making some some decisions of his own. Yes. But Floyd is now at the station. I love her. She's got her big fur hat on. She pulls out her smoking pipe. And Hank and the Fargo chief of police are trying to broker a deal with Floyd. They're letting her know, you know, we know that you started this war. We know you can end it. And you need to take some responsibility and figure out how to save what's left of your family.
2: So the deal that they offer Floyd is that they will essentially give her family, not necessarily her, but her family, her children and grandchildren, immunity for their past crimes, including, Floyd makes sure to clarify, capital crimes, If Floyd gives them some actionable intel on the Kansas City mob, and the idea being this would be a win-win situation. The cops would be able to take out this massive syndicate coming out of Kansas City, or at least put a dent in their operation. And then the Gerhards would get the Kansas City expansion off their back.
1: But Floyd needs some time to think about it. Okay. Uh, Simone is on the road heading to... The Pearl Hotel, per usual. I was like, Simone, what are you doing? They shot up your house. That should be a deal breaker. You should not be going to see Mike Milligan.
2: She still seems to feel that Mike Milligan is going to have some kind of soft spot for her. Or at least isn't going to dare to do anything with her.
1: She bursts into that hotel and she's pissed. She's like, you were supposed to kill my dad, not my grandpa.
2: She's high on cocaine.
1: That's right. This being the 70s. (laughs) And Mike Milligan just unleashes the torrent of his brain upon her. I mean, when she bursts in, he's quoting Camus. He switches to French. I mean, he's pulling out all the stops and it's completely lost on Simone. She's like, are you just going to quote the thesaurus at me? Then there's a shift when Milligan threatens Simone. And Simone, for the first time, realizes that Milligan might use her to get to her family.
2: Right. Milligan is sort of pointing out that he is guessing Simone is her grandmother's favorite. So now Simone can be leveraged and is literally being leveraged with her hair being grabbed by the remaining kitchen brother when dun da dun, dun, dun
1: The cavalry arrives again. It's Lou and Ben. They bust down the door of the hotel room and they're there to save her. Lou asks Ben Schmidt to get Simone out of there. Uh, And Ben Schmidt's like, well, what about you? And Lou's like, I didn't say not to come back. Great moment underlying that Ben Schmidt is a terrible cop, which we'll get back to.
2: So Ben takes Simone in the elevator. Simone seems to be trying to seduce Ben into not telling anyone that, of course, now the cops have seen that Simone is in cahoots with Kansas City, and Simone doesn't want that to get out, so she is trying to play sweet with Ben until she just goes ahead and knees Ben in the crotch, says she's done lying down for men, storms out of the elevator, leaving Ben hurting, and Lou hanging out upstairs with Mike and the kitchen brother.
1: And they kind of have this ideological showdown that for me is summing up a lot of stuff that's going on in the season. Are you familiar with the phrase manifest destiny?
2: Yeah, but see, here's the thing. I own two pairs of shoes, a summer pair and one for winter. We're not meant to have more than we can handle. That's what I mean. So this need for conquest, you know, trying to own things that aren't meant to be owned. Like people? That's an example. But also places. Believing we can tame things. That's a problem, right? Not a solution. You're saying capitalism is a problem? No.
1: Greed. And we're getting this greed is evil message, which we've gotten again and again. And Lou is this humble simple guy.
2: Yeah. And the erudite Mike Milligan, who has an acute sense of irony, is pointing out not so gently to Lou that here's Lou saying, hey, don't try to be expansionist. Don't try to take what's not yours. And Mike is pointing out, oh, really, you know, aren't, what about manifest destiny, implying aren't we sitting on land that was stolen from Native Americans by white people? So Mike is unapologetic. He says, we're the wave of the future. You don't see that or understand that maybe, but we're not going anywhere.
1: Which for me was sad because I was realizing how much Lou really does belong to the past. He's this stand-up family man with the simple sense of right and wrong, and we're about to get into the super greedy 80s. I mean, Mike Milligan's team is the one that wins out ideologically.
2: I hadn't thought about that. Mike Milligan could uh, have a future for him on Wall Street, couldn't he? (laughs) If he makes it through the rest of this episode. But we'll we'll get to that down the line. Meanwhile, Simone now, having taken out Ben, heads out to the parking lot where she kind of goes from the frying pan into the fire because she runs into her family members, specifically her uncle, Bear, who is patrolling with her his buffalo friend. And uh, Bear declares it's not safe for Simone out on the streets of Fargo right now.
1: Well, and right as Simone left that elevator, she had this really brutal line that kind of has been haunting me since last night if i'm going to the noose i'm going but i'm done lying down for men
2: so now simone is in the truck with bear who's going to drive her back to the compound except not so much he drives her out to the woods and makes her walk into the woods and she immediately suspects that things are not what they used to be with gerhardt family solidarity
1: and we get this long march through the woods as Bear's talking about what happened to the women who uh, were known to consort with the Germans after World War II. We're not headed good places. I was freaking out at this point. I thought, there's no way they can kill Simone.
2: Well, and Bear ha- lets Simone know, in no uncertain terms, that he knows she's literally sleeping with the enemy. So Simone knows the jig is up. She's saying, oh my God, no, don't kill me. You know, I-
1: She's begging. She's even willing to call Dodd her dad, which... She didn't want to before. I mean, she's at her lowest point here. She's on her knees in the snow.
2: And Bear draws a gun, and we fly away into the trees and don't see what happens, but we fear the worst for Simone.
1: But as you pointed out, this scene is very reminiscent of another Coen Brothers project.
2: Yes, another shooting in the woods in Miller's Crossing, which features the song Danny Boy, which comes back in this episode of Fargo.
1: I'll admit I'm a little bit of an optimist. I wanted to hold out hope that maybe Bear let Simone go. Maybe she just ran off into the woods and, you know, went off to California and got to call herself Sunshine Rain Blossom. But the actress, Rachel Keller, confirmed today that this was the end of Simone.
2: We just had Lou talking about what a practical man he is, how modest, just kind of a humble brag from Lou, saying he owns only two pairs of shoes. So we are primed to think that it's very ominous when we see Betsy walk into her home, which, of course, is also Lou's home, and she sees more than a couple of pairs of shoes in the foyer. What's going on here? She locks and loads. (laughs) I
1: love that this freaks her out as if these Gerhardt heavies or whoever it is that she's afraid of would take their shoes off when breaking into her house. Like, that's the ultimate, like, optimistic housewife assumption. Like, well, at least they took their shoes off before they, you know, came to kill me.
2: Yeah, save the carpets and also conveniently give her a heads up (laughs) that there are heavies in the house. And there are heavies in the house in a manner of speaking, but uh, they're more literally heavies than heavies in the sense of being mobsters. It's
1: Carl Weathers scoring another point for great character on Fargo. He's there cooking breakfast with Sonny because Lou has asked them to look after Betsy and Molly while he's away up in Fargo.
2: And we're reminded that it's not just Betsy and Molly, but that Noreen is still taking shelter at Lou's house. That's
1: right. Noreen Vanderslice is an adopted Salverson at the moment. We also learned that Carl Weathers is the breakfast king of Loyola. He's cooking up some pancakes, some bacon, all that good stuff. I'm a little wary of eating any meat in Laverne at this point, but I might sit down at Carl's breakfast table.
2: So back at the Gerhardt compound... There's a mysterious caller who keeps calling, and apparently now Ricky from Buffalo is the designated receptionist at the Gerhardt compound, because he keeps answering the phone and coming out to tell Bear, listen, someone is calling who says that this person knows where Dot is. Now, for any other member of the Gerhardt family, this would be a call of extreme urgency, since everyone, especially Floyd, is acutely curious to know where Dot is, but not Bear.
1: Early in the episode, he says, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that third hole in the ground should be for Dodd. I mean, killing Simone was basically his way of getting back at Dodd for Dodd getting Charlie involved. Now his son, Bear's son, is in the prison, and so he took out Dodd's daughter. I mean, it really seems like Dodd is dead to him.
2: Yeah, so getting back at Dodd and then also removing a liability for the Gerhardt family. And so we're kind of led to believe that Bear assumes Dodd has been captured possibly by the Butcher of Laverne. And that Bear is perfectly content to let that butcher of Laverne do what he will with Dodd, whether take him out, sell him to the other side, whatever happens, Bear does not care. And he lets Ricky from Buffalo know that that is his view. Ricky thinks that's a little cold. I guess they're a little kinder about these things in Buffalo.
1: Meanwhile, at the Fargo precinct, Floyd has made a very difficult decision and she's going to flip. She's going to tell them everything she knows about Kansas City and how they smuggle their drugs in exchange for a deal for her family's immunity. It's one of those things where it's like everything I've learned about drug smuggling, I've learned from TV. Apparently Kansas City hides things in the tires of their trucking company.
2: Which is called legit trucking, (laughs) of course. Yeah. And this is uh, echoes of the uh, first season where there was much discussion of how trucking in the upper Midwest is controlled by that Fargo syndicate. Well, it turns out maybe it's more the Kansas City syndicate back in 1979.
1: Speaking of Kansas City, Mike Milligan in his room at the Pearl Hotel gets a very ominous call from the Kansas City folk. They are super pissed that Bear and Ricky executed people on their turf. As the Kansas City leader says, you know, now I've got blood on my socks. And if you can't get this under control, I'm going to send the undertaker. So with the deal brokered, Floyd is being released from custody up in Fargo, and Bear and what's left of his henchmen are there to collect her. And as Lou and Hank are on the front steps of the police station, they get a little new piece of information about a Gerhardt-Heavy-we-haven't-seen-all episode, Hansi Dent.
2: Hansi Dent has taken out a couple of troopers in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, He is on the trail of Ed and Peggy, who we've also not seen or heard from the whole episode.
1: We also haven't seen Dodd yet. There were so many questions at this point. We haven't seen like four of our major characters. When Lou and Hank take this information and want to act on it, Ben Schmidt, the Fargo cop, shows again just how crappy of a cop he is. He's like, oh, you know, that kind of sounds like South Dakota's problem. And we just brokered this deal with Floyd. We should probably just, you know, just leave it be. And Lou lets him have it.
2: Finally explodes. You're a shit cop. You know that, right?
1: (laughs) Meanwhile, Floyd goes back to the compound with Bear. Bear very clearly lies about where Simone is. Like, oh, she ran off. She just hasn't come back yet. She kind of left
2: in a hurry. Oh, yeah. Huh.
1: (laughs) Which, judging by how far he walked her into the woods and the fact that he's lying to Floyd about it, I mean, I think that was really a personal kill for Bear and he doesn't want anyone to know about it.
2: So now Bear is withholding information from Floyd respecting not just Simone, who's presumably killed in the woods, but also the calls he's been getting about Dodd. He's not going to tell Floyd about those calls. But a third call comes in. Well, Floyd is standing in front of the house. Ricky from Buffalo, of course, answers the phone and, of course, wants to just tell Bear about this call. But Floyd, still now being a little naive, says, oh, no, there are no secrets in this family. You can tell all of us who's on the phone. And this time, it's not the original caller, or we don't think it is.
1: No, it's Hansi Dent calling, and he's saying that he knows where Dodd is. So despite Bear's best efforts to keep his older brother gone forever, Floyd runs into the house to take this call.
2: So meanwhile, Betsy, having had a kind of a tender little scene with Carl where she asks him to take care of her family in the case of her, what she is presuming to be her imminent death of cancer... She takes off to go feed the cat of her father, Hank. She walks into Hank's house, and now we're really on edge because we've just heard Betsy talking very movingly about her own impending death, and everything's very quiet and eerie, and we think, oh, this is going to be it for Betsy. It's not, but we get probably an even bigger surprise than Betsy being taken out.
1: That's right. She's walking through Hank's house, calling out for Snowball, his cat, to come out to feed her. She opens the doors of his study, And lo and behold, Hank has had way too much time on his hands and has started a major research project into alien languages. He has this whole place done up in all these crazy symbols that he's attempting to translate. He's got books spread everywhere. I mean, this is like that moment in movies where they find the serial killer's den and he has the pictures of the person up everywhere. But for Hank, it's aliens. There's one last showdown that we have to talk about. It's back at the Pearl Hotel. Milligan is waiting for The Undertaker to arrive. The Undertaker, who we see, is this gentleman with some nice salt and peppered hair. He's got two identically dressed henchmen, which we have learned is...
2: A Kansas City trademark.
1: That's a status symbol, and...
2: The Undertaker gets undertaken.
1: There we go. Milligan has a gun hidden in his sleeve. He executes The Undertaker and his two minions like it's nothing. I mean...
2: With the help of the remaining kitchen brother.
1: And then he gets the call of a lifetime.
2: And it's the butcher of Laverne himself, Ed, who says that he's got Dodd in his trunk. Last shot of the episode, Ed gets in his car leaving a phone booth. On the window of that phone booth, there's an incomplete game of Hangman, and you had to solve this one, Tracy. I couldn't figure out what was being spelled, but (laughs) you correctly guessed.
1: Almost all the letters are there, but it says Sioux Falls.
2: Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Here we are. Time for Life Spring.
1: Time for bodies stacked up to the second story.
2: Death Spring, as the case may be. I just went there. Okay, so, things to talk about. Let's start with Hank and the aliens. What's up with that?
1: We had an Completely alien-free episode, the last episode, except for maybe some potential lights in the sky. People have been speculating on Twitter. Could be lights. We're not sure. Aliens came back in full force in this episode. And can I just say how much I love that Hank's hobby is decoding alien languages?
2: And his daughter is shocked by this, suggesting that this isn't a long-standing hobby that, you know, he would have been working on for decades, but something relatively new that he's developed that his daughter didn't know about.
1: We got a lot of Hank's grief in this episode. When he's talking with Floyd, he's talking about his wife's death. When Betsy looks at all the family photos, you know, she pauses on the picture of him and his wife. I got the sense that he's filled this hole in his life with this new alien hobby, which made it all the more
2: poignant. Right. There's also been a lot of discussion of the fact that Hank just got a pretty big blow on the head, courtesy of Hansi Dent. So this could be the lingering after effects of some brain trauma. This definitely
1: predates the blow on the head, I would say. Otherwise, he's gone like super deep into this super fast.
2: Fair enough. So people on Twitter were complaining about the whole alien component to this show. But all the character's behavior is explicable by rational means, right? Hank might have just become obsessive about alien languages. That was a thing in the 70s. Rye might have become distracted by something in the sky. He was not in a clear state of mind either. So we don't have clear evidence that beings from the great beyond are intervening in the lives of these characters. Or are they?
1: Yeah, I mean, people are complaining like this show is suddenly going to turn into the X-Files, like a UFO is going to land in the middle of the Gerhardt compound and these, like, aliens from signs are going to pour out and there's going to be this, you know, supernatural showdown. What's really happening is Noah Hawley is showing the paranoia and the fear and the obsessions that were going on in that era. These are real things. Whether or not the aliens are real, and I'll leave that to your personal beliefs, what we've seen so far is real.
2: And it sort of ties in with the existentialist theme, too, in that these are characters who are wondering what the meaning of life is. Is there a purpose in the world? Is there anything beyond this increasingly unpleasant existence? And maybe one answer to that question is aliens.
1: Speaking of existentialism, we can't escape Camus. Uh, when Simone comes into the room at the Pearl Hotel, Mike Milligan is spouting a line from Camus. And he has this very unique point about astronomy and revolutions
2: astronomy,
0: the word revolution means a celestial object that
2: comes full circle. Did you know that? Which, if you think about it, it's pretty funny. Considering here on Earth, it means change. So again, we have this reference to the cyclical nature of existence, the Sisyphus myth, things just, it's the same thing happens over and over again, and people just believe that things are going to change, but they're actually not going to.
1: I feel like I've learned more from Mike Milligan than some philosophy courses I took in college, to be honest.
2: He could definitely, if he doesn't go to Wall Street, he could have a career as an adjunct professor at North Dakota State University.
1: Let's talk for a minute about Mike Milligan and race, though, because up until this episode, We, they had not acknowledged Mike Milligan's race. And then in this episode, we get a ton of racism coming out of the Kansas City leadership.
2: That's true. And you pointed out that the sort of the heroes, the cops or the Gerhards have been had a thing to say about Mike's race. But we're learning that Mike's colleagues in Kansas City have plenty to say about his race. We get at least a couple of different racial epithets in this show. And Mike seems to be taking this with a slow burn.
1: I mean, when he quotes Martin Luther King to his presumably his boss in Kansas City and he tells him, you need a new quote, he's dead. I mean, to me, this is very clear that there's a lot of racial tension that's been happening there, which has been completely absent in the first part of the series. On the other hand, we've talked about Hanzi's race a lot. I mean, every time they talk to him, they call him like, you're Indian, the Indian.
2: And Mike's reference to Manifest Destiny in this episode really ties That those questions of race together with the broader theme of entitlement, of expansion, of whether you can be happy with what you have or whether you need to take what belongs to others. And also, this profound irony, right? That this whole drama of good and evil and possession and territory, this is all unfolding on a landscape that has seen profound tragedy, war, exploitation, genocide. This is all unfolded on this Midwestern landscape in the 19th century. These characters are, in a sense, reenacting what has gone before.
1: Is this kind of a call out to the black and white faux Reagan film that started the series, the massacre at Sioux Falls, which was the cavalry versus the Native Americans, um, I mean, we've been set up for this Manifest Destiny, and now that topic has returned.
2: Absolutely. That's a, you have, as in a movie, these characters who have these narratives of heroism and entitlement, and they have stories to explain the meaning of their lives, but the actions that are happening are just resulting in such profound suffering that you could be left wondering, like Noreen, does anything, does any of this mean anything? Are we all just going to die in misery? Bleak, 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 bleak. Should we catch up on what's going on with the Gerhards? Because that's become very confusing now. This war is fragmenting, and family members are turning on other family members. Right.
1: So just for the record, Otto, dead. Rye, dead. Simone, dead. Dodd, in a trunk in South Dakota. <laughs> yeah. Hansi, Possibly
2: wishing he was dead.
1: Yeah. Hansi, also in South Dakota, attempting to find Dodd. Um, Bear has committed a... Well, he's killed his niece and he's keeping that a secret from the rest of his family. Um, and he declared in the woods,, uh, none of us are family anymore.
2: Yeah, he's lying to his mother now. And you have really had quite a character arc with Bear, who was introduced to us in the sort of pre-show publicity materials as a guy who seems gruff but has a heart of gold.
1: I know what? Where was that heart of gold in the woods? I was like, no, this can't happen. He's supposed to be like the lovable bear.
2: I think he's lost it. I think his heart of gold has been broken when <laughs> his son was involved in this shootout against his wishes, and now he's imprisoned. and
1: right. So Charlie, In prison. (laughs) Floyd just released, but she made a deal. And they're also they've lost a lot of their henchmen and a lot of their allies. In the first couple minutes of tonight's episode, we saw the three South Dakota mobsters who we saw before sitting on the couch um, when they were discussing alliances and the potential war. We saw the Kitchen Brothers and various Kansas City people take all three of them out uh, in a bar, in a toilet and then in the snow.
2: But by the end of the episode, the Gerharts may have made some even more potentially powerful allies. Because when, after Floyd makes her deal and goes driving away, we get this sort of telling line from Lou where he declares, I think we've just chosen sides.
1: Dun, dun, dun.
2: So is it now going to turn into the Gerharts and the cops against Kansas City? Is that what this is going to come down to? But
1: now Kansas City, so the Gerharts have been warring against each other. And now Kansas City is warring against itself because... Mike Milligan has just taken out The Undertaker. He's gone rogue. Both sides are having internal conflicts. Yes. To say the least.
2: So something I was wondering about was the scene where Floyd is spilling about the Kansas City mob. And as that's happening, we're simultaneously seeing Mike Milligan's forces dwindling. Do you think that was meant to sort of represent the passing of time and the dwindling of Kansas City's forces and Mike Milligan's power specifically?
1: Yeah, because it starts in the hotel room and he has all these men surrounding him and they sort of peter out as it goes. And his appearance also deteriorates as the scene moves forward. Normally, we see him dressed to the nines, right? He's rocking his bolo tie. He's all dressed up. But by the end, he's defeated on the couch. He's got his collar undone. His room is a mess. And he's alone.
2: Yes. And then we also have sort of a series of flashbacks showing us what's happened to the various Gerharts.
1: This was very strange for me. Yeah. He loves the split screen. Noah Holly loves the split screen. And we're seeing the various Gerhards. We're even seeing Rye in the very first moment that we met him. Uh, we're seeing Dodd the moment he walks into the Blumquist house. We see Simone throw the belt buckle into the grave. Um, we see Floyd and Bear. And it was almost like we were checking in with each of them, but in these strange moments before their deaths. And I mean, for a minute I thought Dodd might be dead when I saw him in this flashback, but of course he's in a trunk.
2: It was a little confusing because the strategy visually so far in this season has been usually to use split screens to show things that are happening simultaneously. For example, Dent's sneaking around the back of the police station while you know, Lou is going out front to face the rest of the mobsters. But in this case, it seems to have been used for a series of flashbacks sort of reminding us what's happened
1: i thought the split screen use uh when bear comes out of the woods alone was also really interesting so when he's smashing his cast on the hood of his pickup truck and he i mean he smashes through the split screen almost like the split screen is showing the same scene but it's fragmenting his act of violence uh i thought that was a really interesting visual setup and yeah ouch Noreen has quickly become one of my favorite characters on Fargo with her morbid existentialist nature and her really excellent choice of sweaters. She worked in the butcher shop until fairly recently, R.I.P. Buds Meats, and her full character name, which is just amazing, is Noreen Vanderslice. She's played by Emily Hain, who we have with us now. Emily, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Tell us a little bit about Noreen. So we just learned in episode six, she's 17 and emancipated and living alone. She's just lost her house to the blaze of the butcher shop. Her favorite holiday is Halloween. What an intriguing <laughs> character. Who is this girl?
0: <laughs> well, when, when I first um, got a few of the episodes and started to understand a bit more of her world, I really had to look back and look into the time, like what Minnesota was like in the late 70s and what a small town would be like and uh, kind of the world she would live in. Like I imagine Noreen sitting up reading a lot of books in her apartment there, listening to a lot of records, uh, and just kind of trying to understand life and what it, where it's going to lead her. Um, Noah Hawley uh, gave me a lot of really amazing references to look at. Watch the Coen brothers movie, A Serious Man. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Yep, definitely. Yeah. He said it's a very Noreen film. And I remember just watching it and it being one of those things that's like, oh, nails on a chalkboard, hard to sit through, but really good. When I was doing this whole character research, it really, I really started questioning more of the the random coincidences in life and if they mean anything or if they don't. And yeah, Noreen's an existential chick, I think.
1: (laughs) Did you read The Myth of Sisyphus then?
0: I did. Yeah, I did. It was like my first introduction to Camus and uh, it was kind of slow going at the beginning. I thought I was just like, oh man, there's all these like regulations for the method of it. And then finally towards the end, it kind of gets into... It gets into that story of that man pushing that boulder, sentenced to this, like, eternal fate of pushing this boulder up the hill just for it to eventually roll back down. And, yeah, it, it, I could see how that could easily take a hold of someone and kind of make them a little bit maybe depressive or something. But I just had to look at it as, like, another outlook, another coping mechanism, I suppose, instead of letting it, like, wash me away, you know?
1: What about this little flirtation that we've seen going with Charlie Gerhardt? Are we going to see more of that?
0: Oh, he's cute, isn't he?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I
0: know, they seem like the perfect little fit. Um, I don't know, can't give anything away, you'll have to tune in and see.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, at first I didn't think we were going to hear Noreen say anything more than okay then, and then all of a sudden <laughs> you have this great scene in, in the butcher shop. So yeah. will we see more of Noreen without giving anything away?
0: Yeah, um originally I was cast to do 6 out of 10 episodes, I believe it was. And then I guess um maybe Noreen's really fun to write for as a character, uh so I ended up getting uh, like a really a more substantial back end and I'm in it till the end there. So, uh, you will be seeing more of Noreen (laughs) before it's all over. Yeah.
2: So you mentioned working on your accent. How was it like to uh, master the accent? Did you find that Minnesotan accent similar to Canadian accents? What were the differences?
0: Well, it kind of sounds similar, doesn't it? I don't know. We think think so. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I, um, the dialect coach, uh, David, who was just awesome. Uh, he was saying that there's some kind of Norwegian ooze and o's with the vowel sounds that make it a little different. Um, and, too, there's some kind of Canadianisms that I'm used to living on the West Coast that, like, are a lot of, like, dudes and, like, hey at the end of, so I have to really make sure I don't, like, slip those in when I'm doing that accent because I feel like it's so parallel. But um, it is – there's slight differences, yeah, but – it's not like having to do a British accent or something. It's a bit of a closer reach, I think.
2: <laughs> people ask you to do the accent now that they're watching the show?
0: All the time. Oh, my God, all the time, yeah. And I just, like, try not to be too bashful. will give, like, an okay then, and okay then. Just gonna... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nailed it. You're really good at that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Fargo has this mix of really brutal violence and yet a lot of humor Mm-hmm. What was it like balancing that as an actor?
0: Oh my gosh, it's so fun. Um uh, totally I'm totally into the whole dark kind of like film noir kind of crude humor of the whole thing. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Coen brothers um before even having worked on this project and uh it's fun. It's fun. Like, when I got to hit that guy over the head with that leg of lamb, like, I don't think there's been anything more fun that I've done in my career, maybe. You know what I mean? Just getting in there and getting your hands dirty. I think Jesse Plenum's gave me, like, a huge chest bump after we did some of those scenes. And he was like, yeah, that's what it's about. And we're all pumped up. And it's <laughs> just, like, it's so fun. I love it. <laughs> what was your
2: favorite scene to shoot?
0: Oh, uh, well.
2: Of the scenes we've seen yeah, so wait, far, of course. Was it the leg yeah. of
0: lamb? <laughs> Well, it might be. It might be the leg of lamb. It was also crazy to – because we rented out this whole arena for that fire scene. And it was amazing. Like, the crew built two identical sets, like, to the back of the butcher shop. And we just burned them both down, like, with real fire and firemen and a crew and pyrotechnics. And, like, I've never – you know, I'm not an arsonist or anything, but that was (laughs) – Fun. That was really fun to burn that to the ground.
1: Yeah. What other kind of historical research did you do or did the show provide you with?
0: Um, Well, a lot of music reference as well. Um, Yeah, music and literature and movies. uh, I think for the time period, I just tried to research, like, American politics, which I'm kind of ignorant to, um, I have to admit. (laughs) but That's fair. You're you're Canadian. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm getting there. But, um, yeah, just, like, I think I would have even, as a viewer, missed a lot of it if I hadn't done that research before because they touch on, like, the energy crisis and then even – just, you know, from Reagan to what it was like as a woman in those times, you know, and finding your ground and your voice. And and then, too, just down to technology, like, like what would a 17-year-old girl want? Like, she's not going to get, you know, probably a digital camera or an iPhone. She's going to want a Walkman and probably <laughs> a few new Bob Dylan records, you know? And so just, like, understanding and, like, living in that And I think I must have asked my parents, too, at the time, like, what was their most precious item in that that era for them. But uh, it was, yeah, it was really cool. I mean, being able to transform yourself and just become, like, another person from another time and live this story out is really what I just love so much about this craft is you get to be different people and see different things that you maybe never would in your normal life, you know? It's... Yeah, it's fascinating, I think.
1: Earlier, we talked to Maggie Phillips, the music supervisor on Fargo, and she told us a little bit about um, some of the anthems that she had in her mind for different characters. Do you feel like Noreen had a song? <gasps> Ooh.
0: Um. Well, I was told to listen to a lot of Devo,
2: <laughs> the Kraftwerk
0: album. Yeah, which I guess because they're a bit radical and Noreen can be considered a bit of a uh yeah a bit of a
2: radical chick. I suppose for a 17 year old in 1979 Devo would have been the sound of the future everything else would have sounded old-fashioned.
0: Yeah I think so right that kind of instrumental obscure yeah radical kind
1: of stuff. Was it fun to go back and play those teenage years then?
0: Yeah um I i I find that it's, it's interesting to kind of go back in time and remember what you were like at that age and remember, you know, how self-conscious you are and how unsure you are, um, and how desperately you just want to figure everything out. Like I can completely relate to that and remember those feelings. I still have those feelings, but I think when you're that young, you just, you know, you're so used to a small little world and I think for Noreen and for myself too, like any chance to kind of break out of that and try and drive your own path is really what all your focus goes towards. So it's fun. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see a little awkward teenager in Noreen when
1: I watch it. <laughs> Are you going to miss the pigtails?
0: Yeah, I will miss the pigtails for sure. <laughs> Great. Maybe I'll put them on today <laughs> in
1: honor. Well, thanks again, Emily. Yeah, it was great talking with you. You You too.
2: Have a great afternoon.
1: Okay,
0: then. You too. Thank you.
2: Bye. Bye. So I really liked your theory about the curse of the belt buckle.
1: Okay. Right. So we see Simone throwing it into the grave. The first person to wear the belt buckle, Rye. Ground up, location unknown. Ed burned it in the fire. I kind of do think Ed might die before this The season is over.
2: Dent picked it up out of the fire.
1: I could also see him being on the deceased list of this season. And then it transferred to Simone. And the moment she throws it in the ground, I mean, she's dead an hour later.
2: And who else might have handled it in between? Dodd, Floyd?
1: I mean... We've seen that patriotic symbols can get you killed in Fargo because Skip Spring and his patriotic tie got buried under the asphalt.
2: So your hypothesis is that at the end of this season, everybody who we've seen touch the belt buckle is dead.
1: I don't know. I think it could be a curse of the eagle.
2: Got a couple more uh, episodes. We'll have to see what happens.
1: Next week, we know for sure we are going to be in South Dakota, which is the land of the rock with the president's face on it. If you take Ricky's uh, travel guide experience.
2: The most ominous of patriotic symbols
1: (laughs) so uh, I think those bodies are going to start stacking up in Sioux Falls next week
2: North by Midwest (laughs) here we go Aw G's is produced by Tracy Mumford Jay Gabler and Molly Blue many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson
1: we're live tweeting the episodes on Twitter at Aw G's Podcast that's A-W-J-E-E-Z podcast
2: our theme music is by the Valdons courtesy of Secret Stash Records okay then bye now